Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome Geoff Ward as my guest. Geoff is the CEO of Hazer Group Limited, a pioneering company undertaking the commercialization of a low-emission hydrogen and graphite production process. Today's episode is the third and last part of a trilogy, which intends to answer this simple question, will the hydrogen economy take off anytime soon, and will it have consequences for the water industry? In episode 1 with Paul Martin, we've looked at hydrogen as a chemical and from an energy point of view. We've seen when it makes sense and when not, and we've been fighting hopium and demonstrating that much of what we hear about hydrogen is wrong. In episode 2 with Alena Farger, we've been looking at the bright side of hydrogen, its evolution perspectives, its interest as an investment opportunity, but also as a portion of a broader decarbonization strategy. By many aspects, these two first parts were a bit of the yin and the yang. Now, there are a few sections where both Alena and Paul still agreed, sometimes with nuances, one of them being turquoise hydrogen. Turquoise is the color we attribute to the hydrogen produced by methane pyrolysis. And it doesn't only produce hydrogen, but also carbon, most of the time as graphite. And that is what Hazer does. They build and develop a process to produce turquoise hydrogen, but with a special kick. Their demonstration plant will be operating on a wastewater treatment plant and will run on biomethane. I let Geoff guide us into all the details of the story, but let me just hint at a bit of how cool that may be. Biomethane is carbon neutral, and turquoise hydrogen extracts carbon in the form of nearly pure graphite. What does that mean? Well, simple, that process is carbon negative. So let me stop spoiling and let's jump into today's discussion with Geoff. But just before, here's a gentle reminder. If you like what you hear, please share it around you or leave a five-star review on the podcatcher you're getting this podcast from. Please do it, and I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Antoine. I'm very, very happy to have you on the show because we will be discussing about something which is almost mysterious to me at this stage and which will be so clear and absolutely crystal clear by the end of this discussion. So I'm really looking forward, but without spoiling the hurt of our deep dive, let's open with the postcard and you're sending today a postcard from Perth. What can you tell me about Perth, which I would ignore by now? So I'm actually obviously I'm speaking to you from Brisbane. I'm on the east coast of Australia. It's summer. Um, it's hot and humid. But our main project at the Woodman Point Water Recovery Facility, our hydrogen production project, our hydrogen demonstration project, is in the city of Perth. It's a beautiful site. Perth is a sort of a spread out city with a lot of space. It's on the coast. And so from my project site, I'm looking west across the, uh, the very blue ocean. It's been very hot this summer multiple consecutive days over 40 degrees C. The site is on a gently sloping hill above uh, the coast and I'm looking out across Garden Island and towards Rottnest. So it's an industrial site with a million dollar view and just underneath me uh, on the construction site, uh, the team are hard at work installing piping, installing valving, connecting equipment as we're working on construction across piping, mechanical, electrical and instrumentation trade skills. I think you spoiled us a bit the deep dive, which will be about this, I would say, original and innovative way you have to create and produce hydrogen out of a different feedstock compared to what most of the people do today. But before going into the depth of that, and you're going to correct me on the terminology, I'd like to understand where the story is coming from. Today, you're the CEO of the Hazer Group. I've seen that you've joined the company in 2018. I think the company was started in 2010. And I was just wondering, what's the story of that company? What's the story of the Hazer Group? Certainly. So Hazer is a clean technology development company. 
we're listed on the ASX, the Australian Securities Exchange. So as a public company, people can go to our website, people can go to the ASX platform and, and sort of read our regular reports. HAZER is actually an acronym. It stood for Hydrogen and Zero Emissions Research. And it's actually the name of a university research program at the University of Western Australia, uh, located in Perth. The company history was that our one of our founders and our current chief technology officer, Dr. Andrew Conegio, uh, he was, uh, along with professors at UWA, uh, invented the HAZER process, a way of making hydrogen and a synthetic graphitic carbon byproduct from a methane feedstock. And so, you know, the company originated out of a research program at UWA, one of Australia's sort of leading you know, technical and engineering uh, universities. Like many um, of the universities, it seeks to commercialise its research. And so the, the research and the IP was spun out into a, a company owned by the university. And then there was desktop research undertaken after a sort of venture capital, seed capital raising, provided the funding for that pre-commercial research. So that's where the, the company started from. Uh, we then proceeded to actually float on the Australian Stock Exchange and raise further money, which allowed us to go through a pilot program. And that takes us, you know, in quick steps, I'm sure we'll go back in more detail on it, but takes us to where we are now, which is building um, the first you know, larger, fully integrated, continuously 24-7 operational facility, utilising our HAZER technology to make low emission clean hydrogen. So we have the beginning and we have the end of the story, or the end by now of the story. But if the process was about producing hydrogen from methane, somehow agnostic methane, why did you decide to go for this turquoise hydrogen and to go for this methane produced out of biogas and in your case, even wastewater treatment plant biogas? Okay, well, methane, or you know, I love the way the European pronunciation of it is methane. Methane is methane. So chemically, whether it's been produced by anaerobic bacteria uh, in a digester, whether that's a landfill or a wastewater treatment plant or a big agricultural facility, or whether it's been produced through you know, the decomposition of organic matter over millions of years and trapped in a reservoir, chemically it's all the same. So where our process is, is happily agnostic to process methane that either comes from renewable sources or from fossil fuel. Why we focused initially on, on biogas is that we actually saw it offered this unique opportunity to really highlight you know, the sustainable circular economy and the, uh, the green principles of our process. So probably the best way to explain it or think about it is that our technology is methane pyrolysis. And it's a low emission way of making hydrogen, but using gas as a starting point, using methane. What does that mean to the, to the person coming new to hydrogen, which is you know, so often in the headlines these days? I think if you say that typically, historically, you know, for all of our heavy industry to date, which uses a lot of hydrogen, even though you don't see it on the market, in things like oil refineries, petrochemicals, making ammonia and urea to make fertiliser, we typically make hydrogen by splitting methane gas in a process that's called SMR, steam methane reforming. And in that process, you take hydrogen, you mix it together with steam, you heat it in the presence of some exotic metal catalysts, and you produce hydrogen, but you produce far more CO2. So you produce somewhere around about eight kilograms of CO2 for every kilogram of hydrogen you produce. And then when you put in the emissions needed for heating up, pressuring, moving the gas, you produce somewhere around about you know, 10 to 15 kilograms of CO2 for every kilogram of hydrogen. Because all of the carbon that's in that methane, and methane is about 25% hydrogen by mass and about 75% carbon, and we can never change that, that's just chemistry. All of that carbon associates with the steam and gets released as CO2. Now, at the other end, where the water industry is maybe more familiar, you can split water to release hydrogen and oxygen. In that case, you've got hydrogen bonded with oxygen. You disassociate it again. You split that bond through a process called electrolysis by passing electric current through purified water. And you get very clean products, hydrogen and oxygen. There are no deleterious emissions to the environment. But that hydrogen-oxygen double bond, not the single bond of the methane, the double bond of the water, an incredibly strong attraction, takes a lot more energy to break. So it's less energy efficient. Pyrolysis sort of sits in the middle. So we take a 
a methane molecule likes SMR. So we're starting with that really efficient carrier of hydrogen. You know, it's got you know, four hydrogens for each carbon. So it's about 25% hydrogen by mass. And we split it. But this time, rather than the carbon having the ability to bond with oxygen and come out as CO2, the carbon sublimates. It goes directly from a gas to a solid state and we produce a dry black graphitic carbon powder. So that way we come out with a primary product hydrogen, a byproduct carbon, and that carbon's now in a solid state. So we can bag it, we can truck it, we can manufacture things with it. If in the end we make enough of it, perhaps we can just store it back in quarries and mines where carbon originally came from. So you've now captured your, your carbon in a way that is much easier to handle than CO2, gives you value-added manufacturing opportunities, and whether that's low-value options like using it to make road pave or building material or whether it's high-value options like using it to make battery anode materials for, for energy storage and you know, electronics, or whether it's even in some quite innovative things that we're looking at for our carbon is ways that we can reuse it in the water treatment industry itself as ways of you know, using its unique properties so that it can substitute you know, for activated carbons or other forms of carbon the water treatment industry uses. So that's sort of where pyrolysis fits in. There's a lot to unpack in what you just explained. So we'll just cut the elephant and slice it in some pieces. So let me come back to what you said at the very beginning. So you explained the electrolysis, which is this green hydrogen, and you explained your steam methane reforming, which is what is done today for the gray hydrogen, and your approach, which is this pyrolysis, which is this turquoise hydrogen I was referring to. When it comes to clean hydrogen, which is a bit your opening point as hazard with this zero emission element in your acronym, you could have chosen to go for the green hydrogen. You could have chosen to go for, I guess, the blue. It's, it's really a colorful word, the word of hydrogen. So steam methane reforming with carbon capture, but from fossil fuel. But you decided from the turquoise, if I got it right, it's because the energy balance was better compared to the green hydrogen. So you thought you had a better chance there to convert the CH4 instead of the H2O. Correct. Our process needs methane gas or ethane. We are completely happy to work on either natural gas or biogas. We're building the first demonstration project using biogas because that is the lowest emission, most sustainable and most circular economy aligned way of making our application. We could and we are considering building much larger facilities in the future based on natural gas, you know, where they are much larger than the availability of biogas would allow. And we could actually run in mixtures of the two. I think you used the word techn uh, gas agnostic in your, your introduction. Yes, we're very agnostic to the source of the biogas. What we did see in particularly looking at things like wastewater treatment and landfill was that we saw that there was, we thought, a, a very good opportunity for both the wastewater industry and the clean energy industry to collaborate. So as your listeners who know the water industry well will know, is that you know, tertiary treatment of the solids, anaerobic digestion to produce gas, you know, is a core part of modern water treatment. It maximises the recovery of water, it minimises the amount of solids that have to go to landfill or be otherwise be disposed of, you know, and it creates a valuable product. And up till now, that product has been typically burnt, either flared just to get rid of it or burnt in an engine to produce electricity. Now, we see that with the push to reduce emissions for, for infrastructure such as water treatment plants, that burning that gas will have a, a limited lifetime. It's becoming economically unattractive as wind and solar get cheaper. Um, it's quite an inefficient way to make electricity because the gas is dirty with the, you know, the the CO2 component of it. So it makes your equipment difficult to maintain, hard to, to keep online. And so we sort of see that turning it into hydrogen, a zero emission fuel, and turning it into graphite, a product which has the potential for high you know, modern manufacturing value add, is going to be a much better use in the long term for this valuable biogas resource. I, I think we're going to have to view it as being too valuable simply to burn. And so we thought that was a great way of demonstrating you know, the attractiveness of our technology in that niche. But we're certainly not choosing biogas, not natural gas. Our development takes us down both paths. Very clear. Nevertheless, if you go with biomethane as opposed to natural gas, you're not only at zero emission, but on the overall chain, you're negative in emissions. 
Absolutely. And, and that's the great attraction to us that you know, we're capturing the carbon that's in that biomethane. And that carbon itself was obviously in a plant or a foodstuff, you know, not that many years before. So we're actually taking carbon that's part of the modern cycle that doesn't have a carbon emission footprint and capturing it in a solid form where we can either use it for manufacturing, so put it to a higher value use, or we can store it for future use or future storage. So there's a second side to that same coin, which you you somehow alluded to when you were saying that this biomethane is, I mean, it's biogas, which contains some biomethane. So with a high content, maybe 60 or 70%, but nevertheless, there's this 30% of something else, most of the time CO2, some H2S. I mean, how do you deal with that feedstock being not so clean and pure than what you can have with natural gas? We clean the feedstock before we react it. If we put CO2 through our reactor, the reactor would still work, but it would be less efficient. You'd have to heat that gas and the gas would you know, just come in and go out. It would probably not stop the process working, but it would make it higher energy requirement, you know, larger process pump sizes, etc. So in our project, we will first clean up the biogas. We will remove the CO2. We'll remove the sulfur components. That is really important to make sure that we end up with a, a clean graphitic carbon at the back end. And we'll remove other contaminants, such as any sort of you know, small ammonia or, or other sort of you know, trace elements that are created through the anaerobic digestion process. So we don't actually deal with, we don't destroy the CO2 that's part of biogas. You know, the CO2 that's created by the anaerobic digestion process will continue to exist and will end up in the atmosphere the way that it currently does. We'll come back a bit on your process in a minute when we discuss your current development at Woodman Point. But right before, I'm still unpacking what you explained just before. And you explained the two outputs of your system, which is on one end, clean hydrogen, this turquoise hydrogen I was referring to, and the graphite. On hydrogen, what is your route or your go-to market? What do you expect to do with this hydrogen? Right, so in a way, we're fortunate that we're still in the technology development stage. So for our first project, we will be using the hydrogen on site ourselves as a fuel source. We're actually going to put it through a fuel cell so that we can learn more about the integration of the fuel cell in our project and also in the, the local power grid. The hydrogen itself could be used for any of the market applications which you see emerging, you know, for heavy vehicle transport, whether that's you know, using it to supply to a refueler, to supply a truck or local bus fleet. It could be used in local industry. Um, so somewhere like the city of Perth that has uh, metals processing and other industries, you know, a number of them use hydrogen. You know, they use very, very large volumes of hydrogen. So currently we're only a small demonstration project, but the hazer type process could supply hydrogen into heavy industrial applications, whether it was refining, biodiesel production, metals manufacturing, petrochemicals, ammonia manufacturing, or the hydrogen could also go into pipeline and utility blending. That's an area that's starting to emerge with your people investigating the ability to blend hydrogen into networks as a way of achieving gradual decarbonisation and reuse of gas networks. Now, all of those applications have been flagged to us by customers in Europe, in particular in Asia, North America. And very much what we're seeing at the moment, I think, is the hydrogen markets are slowly emerging. There's a very much a focus on demonstration projects, on technology proving. We're a good example of that. And we sort of probably haven't seen the full emergence of hydrogen markets yet as a traded commodity. That's something that we're going to watch with interest over the next couple of years. On the other end of your process, there's this graphite, which you're producing, and you mentioned batteries water treatment, which is, of course, very appealing. If you talk with me, because I see that if you say you can replace activated carbon, then it's a win-win. And I see even synergies because you're already on the wastewater treatment plant, which might use that activated carbon to trap emerging contaminants. So there's like a real virtuous story there. How is it today? Do you really produce graphite or is your graphite agglomerated with a catalyst? What's this material and, and what's your long-term vision with it? Then this is a good way of describing it. So we produce a, a graphitic carbon byproduct. It's crystalline. Um, it's highly structured. So it has some of the characteristics of a graphite, but it's also quite a unique morphology. You know, a sort of physical chemical shape would be a way of describing morphology because of the unique way that we create it through the decomposition of methane in the presence of an iron ore catalyst. 
And so we're actually producing quite a unique, you know, new graffiti carbon species. We have a strong R&D program that's investigating what we can do with that. And that covers things like investigating applications in the water treatment. Our carbon will be about 90% pure carbon and the remaining residual impurity will primarily be the catalyst that we add to the reactor and it will exit the reactor embedded within our graffiti carbon. Now, that means that for some applications such as batteries or conductive films or some of the very high value anode type materials, then we'll need to purify that graphite to the levels that it's required for those industries. There's other industries where we hope we can use it as is in its as-produced raw form. And they may be more in applications such as building materials or material blending. And there may be some applications where the presence of that unique impurity, one person's impurity is someone else's dopant. So in most carbon products, you have carbon, but then you might dope the matrix with a specific type of metal cation in order to achieve the unique properties you need. We're, We're certainly investigating the potential for the unique carbon and iron combination to actually be beneficial in some applications. And that's where we wonder whether in some applications around water, it may have some you know, some positive applications and we may be able to develop new ways of using this carbon to help with various water treatment challenges. Now, it's not a direct replacement for activated carbon. It has different surface area. It has different you know, bulk properties. But where you know our vision is to sort of identify a range of niche, specialised, high-value, low-volume markets through to valuable applications which can use it as as is, through to finding just large volume ways of disposing with the carbon when we get to building projects at much larger scale. We hope that we'll be able to develop off our research base uh, a quite innovative and and far-reaching suite of different products based on this unique carbon material. We've touched a bit on your demonstration project you're currently building at Woodman Point, but I'd like now to go a bit to the bone of it. So can you describe what you're doing at Woodman Point? What is Woodman Point? And what do you intend to demonstrate with that pilot? The Hazy technology to date, I think, has gone through a very rigorous but fairly what I'd describe as standard scientific process. It started off with primary research funded by the Australian University System. Uh, We then did some pre-commercial research funded by uh, Seed Capital And then we've been doing pilot plant testing of various reactors over the last two and a half, so around about three years. Around about two years ago, after I joined the company and we were looking at the quality of the pilot results, we felt confident that it was time to accelerate the development of the technology. And so we looked to build a demonstration plant. And that's the the Woodman Point commercial demonstration project you've referred to. So Woodman Point will be a 100 tonne per annum hydrogen production facility. It'll co-produce about 375 tonnes of graphite and it'll be the first fully integrated, continuously operating 24-7 example of our technology. The pilot work we've done to date has been testing different reactor configurations and operational parameters and it's been batch. So it's been small, it's been sort of manual and that gave us a whole lot of really good data about the chemical equilibrium, the kinetics, the reaction, how the chemistry works, the performance of the catalyst the consistency of the quality of the products we produced. But now we need to step it up and show that we can continuously add catalysts, remove carbon, that we can split the carbon and gas streams, that we can purify the gas to to fuel cell grade, so we can purify hydrogen to fuel cell grade, that we can recycle unreacted methane back to the reactor and that we can clean up a feedstock. And then more importantly, we can make all of that work together in an industrial setting. So the CDP will demonstrate that continuous operation of the HAZER process. It will, we hope and we trust and we we believe in our engineering, it will show that we can continuously produce fuel cell grade hydrogen. But it also will give us the first large volumes of graphite, which will allow us to build on our sort of business development and market engagement, will give us larger samples to deal with potential customers and will allow us to take our sort of graphite marketing and, and product development activities in the solids area forward to the next step. The fact to be located on a wastewater treatment plant like you'll be in Woodman Point, does it come with additional challenges, with additional benefits, or is it absolutely neutral and doesn't change anything? I'm thinking, for instance, you know, cooling water is available in 
in tons. You have some heat, you have some streams, you have some new outputs, so, but maybe all of that isn't really of interest for your process. I think long-term integration with other processes will be really valuable, both so that we can sell excess heat and we can use cooling, for instance. For the first project, doing it with the biogas um, had both some advantages and some challenges. Obviously, we have to clean up the biogas, but I think that that's fairly well proven. We understand as an industry, as a sort of an industrial society, we can clean up biogas to make biomethane, and that's been demonstrated in very many commercial sites. The collaboration with the Water Corporation for us was wonderful because it gave us access to a fully renewable feedstock. Um, That did help us open up green funding, which is important as a startup company. The integration with the Water Corporation gave us security of feedstock. Now, because they're already producing biogas, they about use about half for, for power generation and about half is flared. We're going to process gas that's currently being flared. So we're able to make a really good commercial arrangement to buy gas that wasn't going to a high value use. So it was a win for them and it's a win for us. And they get to have a look at a technology which might be really important to modern wastewater treatment plants in the future. The other great thing about, I guess, uh, working with the Water Corporation, one that we really appreciate, is there was significant excess land in a buffer zone, an industrial zone and land surrounding the wastewater treatment plant. So certainly in Australia, wastewater treatment plants have a large buffer zone around them. No one really wants to live cheek by jowl with what in the past would have been called the sewerage works, but now is the water recovery facility. And so we were able to build our plant by borrowing land from the water corporation. So they agreed to not only sell us gas as a feedstock, not only act as sort of a project collaborator so that we could make these applications with government support, but they've also provided us land so that that's one risk that the project didn't have to deal with was land access. So there's both some additional challenges in a more complex feedstock enormous number of benefits, having a strong collaboration partner, having access to land and having access to gas you know, under a collaborative operation. And what about the scale? Because, of course, on the wastewater treatment plants, your output in biogas is going to be limited to some extent to what you can produce with the COD that enters the plant and with the biomass that enters the plant. Woodman Point is, let's say, a middle-sized wastewater treatment plant, I guess if you stay in Australia and you go to Melbourne or to Sydney, maybe there are larger facilities, but still, I don't know how that compares to a direct feed from natural gas, from the current sources of natural gas as a fossil fuel. How important is scale within your process? Do you have big potential wins if you multiply everything by 100, or is it anyways modular so it wouldn't change much because it's just putting reactors next to reactors no we have enormous benefits from scale and that suggests that at least part of the company's future will certainly be based on on natural gas as a way of decarbonizing you know, gas-based industries so you know, we sort of see a couple of different possible ways that the hazer company could operate in the future we could focus on smaller scale plants that supplied hydrogen to local markets, but really focused on graphite upgrading and making highest value green graphite products. And in each case, the ability to make high value graphitic products from a waste, you know, from biogas is incredibly valuable as a way of marketing and distinguishing those products. And in that case, we may be limited on large wastewater treatment plants to a few thousand tonnes per annum. And in fact, the next plant we're looking to build after the Hazy CDP will be around about two to 3,000 tonnes per annum is the next step up stage we're looking at. If you look at the kind of demand that you know, large industry, manufacturing industry, utilities need, then they need hydrogen not in the thousands of tonnes, but in the hundreds of thousands of tonnes. And that obviously takes you well beyond the scope of the water industry or the landfill industry. So you know, we see that our process can actually find applications in both. 10 years down the track, we hope to be operating at very large scale, like the LNG industry, and in which case we'd be operating off natural gas and we'd be trapping very large quantities, you know, millions of tonnes of carbon as a solid. And so we'd be a form of solid state carbon capture and storage and use. So tapping into this theme of carbon capture and utilisation being so important. At the small scale, you know, we offer an opportunity for biogas producers 
to access a suite of products at a lot more value than turning it into electrons or burning it for a flare. So turning it into hydrogen for local transport, you know, where you're you know, competing against products such as diesel, which is a lot more expensive than electricity, or, or and not all, because, of course, for every molecule of methane you produce, you produce both products. You can't choose between them. They're chemically in there. They chemically come out. And you, know, you have the ability to produce the sort of the kind of amount of graphite. Now, let's say if we were doing one to 2,000 tonnes on biogas, you'd produce sort of four to 8,000 tonnes of graphite. That's the sort of the good amount to produce an efficient world-scale plant for sort of high-value conductive materials or, or similar. Now, we have a whole lot of research and development to do to show that our graphite can be both purified and qualified for those markets. But that's the kind of opportunity to create really high-value circular economy advanced manufacturing opportunities embedded with a water treatment plant or synergistic with our water treatment plant. I guess the great thing about large water treatment plants is they typically exist in industrial zones. They're not in residential zones. They're sort of on the fringes of cities, which makes them well-placed to supply hydrogen to transport fleets because transport hubs are typically in the same areas. And it also positions them well for manufacturing. They're often in heavy manufacturing areas as well. And so we sort of see those two paths, the smaller Hazer more focused on high-value graphite as an equal partner to hydrogen and the very large hazer, which is focused purely on achieving very cheap hydrogen by capturing the carbon at an enormous scale and producing hydrogen for those large you know, utility-scale applications. In terms of the future or mid-term commercial balance in what you will be producing of these two streams, the hydrogen and the graphite, if you have to compete with the grey hydrogen, I think what's just going to make the difference for you is how much you can valorize the graphite. So that is one, one option. How much can you extract value of the graphite? The other option is to have strong taxes and carbon taxes, which would, of course, push for greener alternatives and for emission-free alternatives or even emission-negative alternatives like yours. How do you value those two options? I mean, you, you've explained all the possible outputs of graphite, but now the question is how can you Can you sell it? And depending on the quality of the graphite you produce, it's not going to have the same value. And then on the other hand, all the governments of this world could give you a hand by finally walking the talk and saying, we have strong carbon taxes and that makes the process just a no-brainer. Well, you know, the world's sort of three main carbon prices are, are rapidly converging over $100 a tonne. You know, even though the globally traded average is somewhere around about $23 a tonne. There was quite an interesting piece of research put out by Credit Suisse, you know, the investment bank on that this morning. So the short answer is that you need both. You know, at small scale, we may need to add value through graphite, and, and that's sort of consistent with the size of the graphite market and our ability to do so with continued success in our science and our engineering. At the very large scale, in broad terms, there's a methane molecule is 25% hydrogen, 75% carbon. And when you add in some catalyst impurities and some losses in processing, you know, you're going to produce around about three and a half tonnes of carbon for each tonne of hydrogen you produce in pyrolysis. And that broadly holds true, whether it's our process or whether it's one of the other two or three credible processes that are also trying to develop in this area. So when you get to the sort of, you know, the million tonnes of hydrogen a year, you're producing such a large volume of carbon that it's really primarily you're going to be a low-cost hydrogen producer through economies of scale, not through the value of your byproducts. That's what we believe will evolve. And if you look at you know, our technology, it has similar components to other gas processing technologies. We have turbines and compressors. We have reactors. We have heaters. We have cooling water circuits. Yeah, we have a control system. So if you were to walk through with me you know, the Hazer plant in the future, it would look similar to walking through you know, a steam methane or a petrochemical plant. You know, we would have similar structures and handrails and control valves. And, and so you know, we you know, are very confident and believe that our technology will follow the same path as, as other process technologies. It will benefit from economies of learning and economies of scale. And so if, if we look at the unit costs of all of those processes that, that I mentioned, whether it's methane reforming, whether it's petrochemicals, whether it's refining or whether it's LNG, that over you know, 10, 20 and 30 years, the plants get larger and the costs get lower. 
And so, you know, we anticipate that as our technology develops and as is deployed more, that we will become competitive, you know, through economies of scale. The other one is carbon pricing. You know, carbon pricing is essential for this transition. Steam methane reforming is a very efficient, very well-proven method of making hydrogen. We've been using it at an enormous scale for 50 years, you know, in oil refineries and ammonia plants all around the world. And so the whole transition to a hydrogen economy is predicated on the reduction of carbon emissions. And so that will be a key component, that carbon pricing and emissions reduction by regulation, you know, either a combination or one or the other, depending what path different countries take, is going to be absolutely necessary to drive this transition because otherwise it's very hard to make the argument to be the first person to move away from the status quo. You mentioned two main possible outputs for hydrogen, which is the use in industry, which is using really hydrogen. And for them, it's a one-to-one replacement of the black, the gray, or all the fossil fuel-based hydrogens, which is also the case for the Haber-Bosch process. But those are processes which actually use hydrogen, so you're really decarbonating those processes. The other use you mentioned is the heavy transport, the heavy vehicles. There, you're competing one-to-one against electricity and batteries. Do you see that as a competition or is it really two paths that can coexist on the long run? I think, first of all, you're not competing against electricity and batteries, right? You're competing with electricities and batteries to replace diesel, to replace bunker fuel, to replace gasoline, right? So so first of all, I think we've we've got to get the, the structure of the competition right. And I think, yeah, we, we are cheering like crazy for electric vehicles. We're cheering like crazy for sort of Nissan Leaf and Tesla and, and all of the, the new brands emerging from China. You know, we watch with interest and I watch with some envy the progress of electric vehicles in Norway and France compared to Australia. And what I sort of think the way, the good way to think about it is, is to actually think about it a little bit like unleaded and diesel. So... There are certain applications where I think battery vehicles will be the dominant technology. Small vehicles, relatively low usage rates, lots of downtime, fairly light duty. So, you know, if you live in you know, a European city and you don't drive particularly long distances, you mostly stay you know, relatively close to home, your car has a fair amount of time of not being used, and that's the pattern of city consumption, then I don't think there's really any serious argument that, that that use will be best served by a battery electric vehicle. A small vehicle, efficient battery, lots of ability to charge. And personally, I believe what we'll find is that as more and more vehicles are on our grid, then our grid problems gradually decrease or change rather than increase. We'll see a lot more, more two-way storage. And so, you know, renewable energy into battery vehicles is a no-brainer. That that has to happen if we're going to decarbonise. On the other hand, there's a whole lot of applications and the ones where we've typically ended up with diesel engines, not unleaded petrol engines, which have very long distance requirements, have very high time usage, so they they can't easily spend time recharging, and they they need to have absolutely certain insecurity about range. And so hydrogen in trains... Yeah, heavy lorries, heavy trucks, so yeah, freight transport, possibly ferries, are ways of saying, are ways of actually keeping that usage pattern the same. You know, you can pull up and refuel. You can guarantee you know, your range and your and your fuel through filling your tank. And so, I think that the applications like heavy mining fleets, like bus fleets, like long distance road transport and rail are more likely to fit fuel cells more and more in the future. So there will be some degree of competition between fuel cells and batteries, but actually what we're really talking about is different forms of electrification. And the real competition is electric mobility versus internal combustion engines. Now, I think that that is being overwhelmingly won. The first battlefront where the victories are happening are in small vehicles. And then, you know, as infrastructure evolves, as... Yeah, manufacturing evolves as customer patterns evolve, we'll move on to the next levels. And yeah, I think hydrogen for transport will be a role. I think there's a third part we didn't mention. So there's the direct replacement in industry, there's the direct replacement in transport, but hydrogen also plays a critical role in balancing in the power network because hydrogen is a way of consuming renewables on a 
regional or international scale when you have excess renewables and giving back power when you have a shortage. So, you know, hydrogen's ability to play that role in allowing the penetration of renewables in the broader energy system, grid, industrial heating and cooling, as well as manufacturing feedstock, as well as transport feedstock, as well as the direct use, should not be overlooked. And I think it'll be a key. You know, all of the the long-term technology forecasting indicates that that hydrogen is going to be key in allowing us to get to sort of 80 and 90% penetration of renewables in a modern heavy energy of society from sort of the 30 or 40% that we're getting now. But that third path is not the one you're following right now because that's more the green hydrogen, so this electrolyzes, right? Well, no, no not at all. I disagree with that. You know, that hydrogen is hydrogen. What matters is how much carbon is emitted in its production. And so you know, we can play a role in that alongside electrolysis. You know, another way to think about it is, of course, is that Renewables are abundant but are not limitless in certain areas. So if you look at a country such as Australia, where we have a small population, abundant wind and solar, yeah, we can meet our needs many times over. And we also have relatively low energy requirements. So while air conditioning is now considered an essential in modern Australia, it wasn't 20 years ago, and you certainly won't die of cold in Australian winter. And Australian winter does a good impersonation of European summer in, in large parts of our company, of our country. But then if you look at sort of countries such as Northern Europe, parts of Northern Europe, parts even parts of Canada, despite its um, hydro resource, then because they have a much higher energy requirement, particularly because of winter heating, they can't meet their energy requirements through their own renewable endowment. And so if you look at something like hydrogen, we can make green hydrogen from renewables, but it's a relatively less efficient way of using that renewable energy to make hydrogen because it has has such a high energy requirement than if we do it through ways like pyrolysis. And so we very much see that those massive energy needs of the future will be met by a combination of your own production, and that might be pyrolysis rather than electrolysis, depending on what the attributes of the country is. It'll be met by a combination of import and export And then one of the questions is, is it better to actually import and export hydrogen or should we actually continue to export gas and make low emission hydrogen at destination? Or is that a a transition pathway? So we think that there's going to be a much more complex hydrogen system in the future than, than we conceive now, that every time we look at the implementation, and I think we sort of as an industry, yeah, we find different ways of configuring the infrastructure, the energy source, the production technology, to find different ways of meeting the market needs. How important to that extent is it for you to be based out of Australia? Because you mentioned some of the peculiarities of Australia. There's even more, I would say. I mean, you're probably a country which has the most exposure to solar energy. You have a notion to the west of the country, which means that you have a lot of of wind coming at night, which means you have really this potential in terms of renewable. And strategically, you have the LNG capabilities because you have all this LNG ports which are already equipped within the country. And to the north, you have countries like Japan, I mean, far north, but Japan or South Korea, which will have, because of, let's say, political or geopolitical reasons to invest heavily into the hydrogen economy. So that makes you a real hot spot for all of that to happen. Does that help you by any means in the development of Hazer? I think we have a very global perspective on our technology. So if we were focusing only on Australian market, it would be a very challenging place for us because like you said, Australia is probably one of the best places in the world to do green hydrogen from electrolysis. But we don't see our, uh, yeah, we don't see ourselves being anchored in Australia from a market perspective. You know, the technology was developed here at the University of Western Australia. You know, Australia is fortunate in having a really strong publicly funded university system. And given, you know, our history in gas, mining you know, and industry, you know, it has a strong engineering and sort of, you know, an, an industrial background. So it's a good place to do technology development. You can access engineers and researchers and there's a lot of people with skills in, you know, the gas industry and construction, et cetera. On the other hand, it's quite an expensive place to operate because we have mining and LNG industries which soak up many of those resources. So where the technology is developed and where it's used really aren't connected necessarily at all. 
we're talking to upwards of, I'd have to count, but sort of let's say 15 to 20 potential international collaboration partners. And they span Europe, North Asia and North America as well as in Australia. And it's very probable that a lot of the future development of our technology and deployment will be in, in other jurisdictions that have a really high need for low emission fuels for things like heating and so are working really strongly to incentivise their early uptake, but at the same time have access to gas and access to low carbon power because when we, we use electricity to fire our process to further reduce the emissions rather than burning gas in our process. And so there's countries that, you know, that meet those criteria very, very well in addition to Australia. Which makes for a very smooth transition to my crystal ball question. Thanks a lot for that. Where do you see Hazer in five to 10 years? Well, I hope that you know, within 12 months, we're now producing you know, hydrogen and graphite from our first demonstration program. And I hope that we're, we're coming up to making a, you know, an investment decision on a next project that we've found a partnership and collaboration and, and supportive jurisdiction to build the first larger scale Hazer project. And I hope in five years you know, that that project is, is up and running and that second and third Hazer projects are in development. And then in 10 years' time, you know, we have a, a number of Hazer projects operating commercially. We've established you know, strong markets for specialty graphite products and that we're continuing to improve the technology, increase the scale of the projects and decrease the cost with every implementation we do. Sounds like a very promising path forward. So thanks a lot for all this wisdom you've shared in that deep dive. Unless I've missed an elephant in the room, I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. In that last section, I'm asking you short questions, which aim for short answers, but you'll see that I'm the one which is sidetracking the conversation all the time. So don't worry. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Uh, certainly building the, the Hazer commercial demonstration plant because it's the first application of a new technology. It's where it jumps out of the lab and the pilot plant into industry. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Uh, I think that developing new technology is hard, that you can lay out a plan, you can set your strategy, but then you've got to get the maths, the physics, the engineering and the operations right. We're learning you know, as we've gone through this project. We've learned so much in our design phase and fabrication phase before we've even got into construction. All these parameters you mentioned are technical parameters. Don't you have also something else coming in the way like regulation, background or acceptance by your potential customers in the future to go down that route? Absolutely. I mean, you know, developing a new technology in an emerging market is incredibly hard. So convincing people to be the first to try something, that's hard. I won't sidetrack you here, but I had Kobe Nagar on that microphone saying that in the water industry, which you're now somehow in, everyone wants to be first to be second. So that's a bit the same. <laughs> I would say that, that, that that's universal and it's rational for many companies. You know, it's, it's a much more rational response occasionally to wait and see and be a fast follower. But of course, if everyone waits, we get what we've had for the last 30 years, which is a lot of intent, but very little action on hard to abate sectors. Is there something you're doing today in your job that you won't be doing in 10 years? I'm absolutely sure there is, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> what is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? Well, you know, I, I come to, the, to your podcast, I guess, maybe with some expertise, some little expertise in hydrogen, not in water. So I certainly wouldn't be arrogant enough to sort of try and talk about the water industry to your expert audience. I guess in dealing with the water industry, I've been really impressed by their commitment to improve, to decarbonise and to improve the, you know, the quality and reduce the impact of their operations. And I think that that's part of a, it seems to be part of a long-term trend. And I think also the water industry appreciates how scarce water is. And that might sound like a really obvious thing to say and how valuable water is but when you're not in industry when you're like me you're just a consumer it was a real eye-opener dealing with the water utility and understanding exactly the level of you know, skill and focus and and excellence it provided every day to making sure that every single day my tap turned on and, and the water tasted nice so 
I see there's a really sort of you know, solid foundation for that trend towards excellence and reducing your, your impact. I can tell you, I've made some calculations, very humble calculations on my very humble points based on research I found from various water researchers. And if you take only municipal wastewater, there is about 1,600 terawatt hour of energy, chemical energy, which is trapped inside and which currently is not really leveraged. And if you make like easy comparisons, it's about 320 nuclear reactors of energy, which is in the wastewater. And on the other end, today, wastewater treatment is about 3% of the world's carbon emissions. So we have at some point to do something about it because if we go to a zero emission world in, in, in which we want to thrive by 2050, then also the water industry has to do something about that. So having companies like yours, which say there is energy in what you're producing, which we can decarbonate and even go to this negative emissions level is probably a very important brick in the wall. So you may not yet be in the middle of the water sector, but I would imagine that despite what you explained during this conversation, how it's not limited to biomethane, you can go to also more classical sources of placing the steam and reforming through your pyrolysis. But I think you really have a point if you can help the water industry to decarbonate. So that's just my humble two cents to conclude that discussion. <laughs> well, Geoff, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot for your openness and for everything you shared today. I hope I didn't bother you too much with my muggle questions about hydrogen and energy. I made a lot of mistakes between steam emitting, reforming, pyrolysis, and all the colors and shades of hydrogen, but I hope people will still be able to get everything through your very clear explanations. If people want to follow on with you after this uh, podcast, where shall they reach out to you? If they reach out to us through the our website, which is www.hazergroup.com.au, then they can certainly make contact with us through the website. Perfect. And like every time, all the links are in the description of this episode. Thanks a lot. And I'll be watching the evolution of that vision you had for the next 10 years of the Hazer Group with great interest. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Antoine. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.